You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. One time or another in your life, you've probably asked the question, what's next? Perhaps it was a big deal, a big decision. Maybe you were just trying to figure out where to go to lunch that day. We ask that sort of question in a variety of circumstances, don't we? But most of us, at one time or another, have probably asked the question, what's next? And it's a question that the disciples were asking from the beginning of the book of Acts, weren't they? Jesus is raised from the dead. He goes and spends several weeks with his disciples, and they're asking him, Jesus, what's next? Is this the time? When will you restore the kingdom? Let's get on with it. We've got things to do. You've got things to do. There are people to deal with and systems to build. What's next? And Jesus answers their question, but not in the way they would expect. He tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit that they'll receive power. And that happens. And when they do, they are empowered to preach the Gospel to bear witness to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And His ascension. And that same question still kind of runs through. We focused on this initial thing. We focused on the proclamation of the Gospel. We're doing that. The Spirit has shown up in power So that Jesus' name is exalted. But we still got that other question. What's next? How does this movement go forward? How do we respond? I mean, we've heard the gospel. What's the Spirit going to do with that empowered proclamation? We've heard the gospel. How do we respond to that? What's next? Again and again and again. We very quickly discover as we read through these texts that the emphasis falls on repentance as a response to the gospel. The emphasis falls on repentance among those who hear as the appropriate response to the gospel. Not the only possible response, but the appropriate response. But for those of us who kind of maybe been around for a while, I wonder how frequently we think about repentance as a response to the gospel. You know, a lot of us, maybe we've grown up in church and we're kind of familiar with it, or maybe we didn't grow up in church, but early adulthood, after college, maybe we had kids, we got involved, and we think about repentance. We sure do want our kids to repent when they sin, but I wonder how much we internalize that ourselves. Or do we think of repentance as something you do, you know, back when you pray the sinner's prayer? Or when you have really big sins. There are some things you need to repent of, and we all know what they are, right? But how often do we think of that as kind of an ongoing, consistent orientation of our lives? Like, is my life oriented around this posture of turning from me and my agenda and my sin and my preferences and all those things? My heart turned in on itself. Am I consistently being reoriented towards Jesus? Am I consistently turning from sin and turning toward Jesus? Because repentance is about a turn. And as we come to Acts chapter 2, 
we discover that repentance is followed by behaviors and actions and practices that cultivate that initial turn. There's an ongoing posture, an ongoing orientation, an ongoing attitude. And the thing that we begin to discover, maybe pushes back against some of our assumptions, is that repentance is a lifetime posture, not a one-time choice. Think We think about repentance as something we choose to do on occasion. Yelled at my kids, I better repent. Lost my temper at work, I probably need to repent. Said something I shouldn't have said. But what if repentance isn't just those moments? What if those moments where it's obvious something has to be turned away from and Jesus has to be turned to, what if those moments are cultivated by ongoing spiritual practices and ongoing spiritual disciplines and an ongoing, thoroughgoing orientation towards the gospel? So that repentance isn't just, well, I messed up, time to repent. Instead, it is a lifetime posture of being thoroughly engaged and oriented, single-mindedly devoted to Jesus. Does that push back a little bit about how we think about repentance? And is that what the Bible teaches? That's our question today. So Peter has been preaching the gospel. Pretty sure this is a summary of his sermon, because if you read through this, it would take about a minute and a half. And a minute and a half sermon ain't much of a sermon, is it? But we get a summary of the, the big main point of what he's here to say, and he's, he's explaining through the power of the Holy Spirit how God has been at work in Jesus to bring, to bring Jesus into the world, to defeat death, to forgive sins, to defeat death, and to bring Jesus to the place of enthronement in heaven so that he is the king over all the earth. Remember the one who reigns in heaven calls the shots on earth in a biblical worldview. Heaven's not the place where like Jesus is going off to chill for a while while we wait for a few thousand years for him to come back and sort things out. He's sorting things out from his heavenly throne room, the command center. Mission control is the throne of Jesus. So Peter explains it, and he talks about how God has been at work to bring Jesus. Now the Old Testament testified to this and anticipated this, and how it was there all along. And then we get this really abrupt movement from what Peter has to say in verse 36 to how people experience what he has to say in verse 37. Have you ever noticed how the Bible consistently addresses our experiences? We meet people whose hearts get broken in the Bible. We meet people who get done wrong in the Bible. We meet people who call out to God to give them justice in the Bible. To defend them from their enemies and their grief. The Bible is very interested in the way we experience God. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, we meet some people who experience God in a very profound, striking, amplified way when Peter preaches the gospel. So the gospel is the first thing, and that provokes something in the people who hear it. Which would suggest, if you hear the gospel, it doesn't provoke thing, something, something. Like, 
That should be a red flag. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. When they heard this, when they heard this, when they heard what? When they heard Peter preach the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. He was a man attested to you by God, by signs and wonders. He was handed over to the Romans by you for crucifixion. God did not abandon him to the grave, but vindicated him, raised him up from the dead, and exalted him to the right hand of God the Father Almighty as Lord and Messiah over all things, all nations, all peoples. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When they heard that, when they heard that, we are told they were cut to the heart. You ever been cut to the heart? What's he getting at there? Like, that's a, obviously it's a metaphor. Nobody's got knives or blades out here. No one's getting stabbed. It's a metaphor, isn't it? What's the metaphor about? There's something happening in their psychological, emotional, human experience. When they hear the gospel, when the Spirit of God shows up and empowers Peter, they are cut to the heart. What's going on there? I think it's helpful. Oftentimes, the Scripture will help us interpret Scripture. The Bible will help us interpret the Bible. It's helpful if we read this text alongside 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. And Paul is describing and giving thanks for the first time he showed up in Thessalonica and the first time he preached the gospel to the Thessalonian Christians. And this is what he says. We'll start in verse 2. We always give thanks to God for all of you. We mention you in our prayers, constantly remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness in hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is, this is celebratory prayerfulness. Verse 4, For we know, brothers and sisters, beloved by God, that He's chosen you. Verse 5, Because our message of the gospel came to you. And this is thinking back when the gospel first came. The gospel came, Paul showed up, started preaching, talking about Jesus, just like Peter on Pentecost. Jesus lived, died, raised, ascended. Four aspects of the gospel. Absolutely essential. Paul goes around, preaches the same message. Our message of the gospel came to you not in word only. You know what word only means, right? Word only is the kind of stuff we do before the service. Just catching up with each other. Kind of typical conversation. Talking about sports or maybe somebody in the family who frustrated you over the weekend, or just average talk. Paul says, when the gospel comes, it doesn't come average. Not even close. When the gospel comes, it does not come like other messages. This isn't like a, a newspaper headline or the things you see scrolling through social media. It's not average, insignificant chatter. The gospel comes not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. That sounds a lot like Pentecost, doesn't it? The Spirit is active with power. Notice these themes that show up in both places. That's why it's helpful to read them beside each other. The Spirit shows up in power and with full conviction. So Paul is 
remind, reminding the Thessalonians that when he showed up in the marketplace or the synagogue, wherever he went, and began to talk about Jesus, or those four things again, lived, died, raised, ascended. When he started talking about Jesus, it wasn't just like, hey, did you catch the game last week? Interesting, but not of eternal significance, or any real significance. It was an experience among the hearers of power and conviction. Paul's just telling us that's what happened. And I think, because we get both power and spirit in both of these texts, don't we? Acts 2, power, spirit. 1 Thessalonians 1, power, spirit. And then Luke tells us they were cut to the heart when the gospel was proclaimed through the power of the Spirit. Paul tells us that they experienced conviction when the gospel was proclaimed through the power of the Spirit. If we follow that, I think you see where we're going here. Luke is telling us a story where Paul is just rehearsing kind of some theological implications. Luke is putting us into the experience of conviction. He's inviting us to experience what it feels like to be under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We don't just go, oh, I'm feeling convicted right now. No big deal, right? They are cut to the heart. They feel their distance from God. They feel the weight of their sin. They feel the weight of their transgression. They feel the judgment of their rebellion. And these are the people of God, folks. He's in Jerusalem. He is addressing the very people who handed Jesus over because they thought they were being faithful to their God. That's a PR nightmare. But when the Holy Spirit shows up in power, the gospel is proclaimed and Jesus is honored, lived, died, raised, ascended. The Holy Spirit goes to work. You know when the Holy Spirit does not go to work? When we only tell part of the story. Jesus was a great guy and he had a lot of great teachings, you know. Love God and love your neighbor. People don't like all that cross stuff though, so let's just kind of put that, let's minimize the bloodiness and emphasize the niceness. Does that sound familiar? You ever hear sermons that minimize the bloodiness and emphasize the niceness? Jesus isn't so much a Savior, but He's a really good teacher. Jesus isn't so much a dying Messiah, but He's a really good moral example. Page after page after page in books, sermon after sermon after sermon in churches. Holy Spirit doesn't promise to show up in power when you only tell one part of the story. Yes, Jesus is a good example. (laughs) He embodies the character of God. Of course he's a good example, but that's not all he is. Yes, he's a good teacher, but that's not all he is. And when the early church, when the apostles, when Peter, when Paul declared the gospel with integrity, say that again, the gospel with integrity, Jesus died. He lived, he died, he was raised, and he is the ascended Lord. When that happened, the Spirit of God showed up 
confronted people and convicted them. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They experienced conviction. They experienced a sense of distance between them and God. And then they start asking questions. They said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what do we do? What do we do? What's next? There's that question again. We've heard the gospel. What's next? They don't even know how to respond. They just know that something's happening to them. Maybe we've been there. Maybe we experience Jesus, even if we've never been given the theological language to explain what's happening to us. I've met a lot of church folks who've had a real experience with Jesus, and nobody ever told them how to talk about that. Forgiveness of sin, justification by faith, those kinds of things. Pardoning, a pardon received from God. I mean, that's kind of where these guys are. They're like, we hear it. We believe it. We are experiencing God in this moment. This isn't an abstract philosophical theory. This isn't a book of systematic theology with a bunch of definitions out front and all these different kinds of approaches and perspectives. These are just people who are far from God, who've heard the gospel, and want to get close to God. And they don't even know what to do. But they know something's got to be done. Something must be done. And so Peter has an answer for it. The first word that comes out of his mouth is what? Repent. Turn. Stop it. Stop that and start this. That's what repentance means. The idea is, if I'm walking in this direction, following One Lord, some Lord, probably myself. Repentance means stopping and turning and going in the other direction after Jesus. Because my heart will lead me one way, Jesus leads me the other way. My heart will lead me one way, Jesus leads me the other way. So Peter says, repent. Stop being the kind of people who hand Jesus over to the Romans. Repent. Now, that's not the only possible response, is it? Because if we re- as we read through Acts, we'll find people who respond to the gospel quite differently. We haven't gotten there yet, but here before too long, as we get into the next few chapters and, and on into the middle of the book, we're going to find people who hear the gospel and they don't respond with conviction, they respond with opposition. Oh, yeah? Thinking to bring talk about King Jesus up in here? No way. We'll show you what happens to people who talk about another king here. And sometimes Paul winds up getting beaten. Sometimes he winds up spending the night in jail. So the Spirit provokes a response. The appropriate response is what? Repentance. The wrong response is opposition or indifference. And I've seen all of them. Over almost two decades of ministry. Some people hear the gospel and love it. Others hear the gospel and say, eh. And still others hear the gospel and hate it. The reason we hate the gospel is because it dethrones us. 
later on in Acts 17, some of the people respond to Paul saying, you're around here preaching decrees contrary to the emperor. There's another king, and his name is Jesus. Because everybody knows in the Roman Empire there's only one king, and his name is Caesar. And when you go around talking about how Jesus is enthroned in heaven, Caesar wishes he was enthroned in heaven. He's only got Rome. Heaven's a little bit, a whole lot higher than that. So they go around announcing Jesus is Lord, and he's enthroned and has the name above every name. And so in Acts 17, they say, like, they're breaking the law, saying there's another king other than the emperor, Caesar. Because everybody understood, and we should understand, that the gospel is a claim about absolute authority. And the name of the king is Jesus. And if we don't want Jesus to call the shots in our life, in our church, in the world, we'd rather do that, wouldn't we? Amen? We don't want to admit it, but it's true. That's when the antagonism shows up. That should be a red flag. If we hear the truth about Jesus, and we meet that with resistance, it's time to repent. If we hear the truth about Jesus and it doesn't move us at all, if we're indifferent, take it or leave it. That should tell us there's a massive problem. The thing we want to happen when we hear the truth about Jesus lived, died, resurrected, and ascended. The thing we ought to want to experience is the Spirit of God working powerfully to identify the things that keep us far from God and overcome them. So Peter says, repent. Turn from those things. Turn from them. They're not always obvious sins. Sometimes they're good things. Sometimes they're expected things. I don't have time to make it to the ball game. I got to put in some overtime. Not always. But we need to be aware that sometimes we can choose good things. pass over those to whom the Lord has entrusted to us, those whom the Lord has entrusted to us. I know what that feels like. And there are times where we've got to say, you know what? We're going to carve out times not for what's good, but for what's best. I'm going to turn from things that appear to be good and give myself to those and to what Jesus has given me in my life and give them everything I've got. So the Spirit works through the gospel to produce those kinds of responses. And it starts with a one-time deal 
but it doesn't end there. There's a first moment of repentance, isn't there? We don't just stop. As the Spirit continues to reveal places in our hearts, dark places in our hearts, jealousies, anger, frustration, different kinds of, different kinds of unholiness, there's an ongoing posture to be cultivated. So there's a first step, there's an initiation, and there's an ongoing posture. Begin to see that as we read on. So Peter says, repent, and then he says, be baptized. So you get two commands, repentance and baptism. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus, so your sins may be forgiven, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away. Everyone whom the Lord God calls to Him. So, baptism, being linked up with repentance, begins to help us see that this is not something you do once and then forget about it. Because baptism is an initiation into a new way of life. Baptism is an initiation into a new posture of life. Baptism involves union with a new king. Union with a new lord. It means changing allegiances. And so it happens once and only once because God lays his claim on you once. What happens in baptism? God himself through his church says, you belong to me. And you might resist that, but he still says, you belong to me. And it's incumbent upon us to respond to his declaration, I love you, you're a part of my covenant, I want you in my family. It's incumbent upon us to respond to that in faith. To trust him. To have our lives conformed to his will and his purposes and his character. Sometimes I remind my kids, like when I baptized you, God was saying, I want you. Now you're responsible to respond to that. Trust him, honor him, love him, obey him. And he will be formed in you. That was the first step of a lifetime of change. And it's a lovely sign of grace because you had no idea what was going on. And God shows up through the community of faith. God shows up through the church and says, I love you and I want you and I'm putting you in the middle of a people who will care for you and form you and preach the gospel to you and teach the Bible to you and entrust the faith to you. That's a lot of responsibility. But Peter says the promise isn't just for you, it's for your kids. Doesn't he? Promise isn't just for you, it's for your kids. God wants your kids, folks. <laughs> Thanks be to God. <laughs> And so we bring them to him, and he puts his covenant on them and on us, and he draws us to himself. And the action is on his side, isn't it? The action is on his side. It is his gracious initiation of a new covenantal relationship. 
through the water, in the Spirit. Doesn't mean it's a forever permanent relationship, because there's plenty of folks in the Bible who walk away from that. Sadly. Sorrowfully. Scripture tells us about people who shipwreck the faith. We don't want that for one another or for our children, do we? So we remind and teach the promise is for you, and it is a promise. God has called you, He's named you, one of His. We want to live into that. We don't want to walk away from that. We want to live into that. And here's what it looks like baptism. That's why we only get baptized once. Because it's an initiation into a new experience of life. You get baptized once, you come to the table regularly. Because you get born once, and you have to eat every day. So Peter says, we start off, you turn, you repent, we're going to put some water on you, and God's claim, Jesus is your new Lord. But that lordship is not a one-time event it's the, it's the launch of the rest of your life. So begin to see this, this reality that repentance is a lifetime posture, not a one-time choice, because repentance is associated with baptism. And so if we baptize our children, we want to teach them to repent. And we also have to model repentance for them, don't we? Because we all know, how do kids learn best? Imitation. Repentance is... A lifetime posture, not a one-time choice. Because if I want my kids to learn how to do it, I better model it. And if they're not with me, if they're not seeing me, if they're not hearing me say, I sinned against you, I repent, don't ever expect them to be able to live that sort of life for Jesus. I really don't like telling my kids I was wrong. (laughs) painful to tell a six-year-old you're wrong. It's also crucial for their Christianity. Don't expect your kids to be Christians if you never confess your sin to them. They They will imitate us for better or worse. So let's model the sort of life we want for them. Repentance is a lifetime posture, not a one-time choice. It's got to be my posture if I want it to be the posture of my children. I repent. Is that part of my family vocabulary? To baptize our children isn't to say they never have to choose Jesus. It doesn't mean they're eternally secure. It doesn't mean like one and done, the deal is sealed. You will meet Christians who feel that way or act that way, and they're typically a mess. They may not realize they're a mess, but they are a mess. (laughs) We offer our children to God that he may place his covenant upon them. We bring the world to him and invite God to give his covenant to them. Children, adults, we just want people, we just want God 
bringing people into his family. Amen? And that launches us into a lifetime of fellowship and instruction on what a life of repentance and holiness looks like. Not a one-time, not a one-off for the rest of your life, whether you start at 2 or 22 or 82. Lifetime oriented towards repentance, to turning from me, turning to him. Turning from me, turning to him. Peter says, this is what it looks like. This is how you get into the community. This is how you're initiated into the community. And this is what's going to follow. And what follows? They come into the community. And then they are, inaug- and then they're like enculturated into a set of practices. And what do those practices look like? Verse 41, those who welcomed his message were baptized. They're initiated into the community. And that initiation into the community launches them into a series of practices. Number one, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You want a good sign that you're converted? You love hearing the Bible. They got converted and they ran to the word. The apostles' teaching is right here. You want it? Just open up the book. Peter, an apostle. You want his teaching? It's right here. Paul, apostle. You want his teaching? Right here. We have the apostles' teaching. God, in his perfect love, has providentially ensured that this document made it to us 2,000 years later. God, in his providential love, has made sure a trustworthy document has made it to us 2,000 years later. So the believers came into the community and they devoted themselves. They didn't just pick it up once a month. They didn't just go listen to Peter and James on occasion, you know, if they had a little bit of time or if they weren't too tired. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Brothers and sisters, step number one in the Christian life. In a life marked by ongoing an ongoing posture of repentance is devotion to the Scriptures. If we are only minimally acquainted with the Scriptures, if we are only minimally interested in the Scriptures, if we are only minimally... like, There's no such thing as minimal devotion. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> if our approach to the Bible is one of minimalism, don't expect to cultivate a life posture of repentance. Because the Word of God is the place where our sins are confronted. God's Word is true. God's Word is a standard. When you have a standard, everything that doesn't measure up to the standard becomes clear, doesn't it? A couple weeks ago, I'm trying to build some shelves. So I got out a level. I'm trying to make sure it's like there's a standard with a little bubble right in the middle of the thing. That's the standard. And if I don't get the shelf on the standard, it's going to be crooked and stuff's going to fall off on somebody's head. Sure for us is a standard. Doesn't mean it's this mean, like, you dirty sinner, come, that kind of thing. It's God in His perfect love saying, here is my best for you. Here's what a straight shelf looks like. You build your life in a way that doesn't accord with the standard, everything's going to fall off on your head. It will hurt. Your shelves will be crooked. devoted them. They got baptized. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And if you come to, these, to this book, 
you listen for what the Spirit says. He will identify, hey man, here's a spot in your life that doesn't match my best for you. The shelf is crooked. I'd like to straighten it up. That's love, not legalism. It's love, not domination. It's a father who wants his children to become the full stature of Christ. So what do they do? They devote themselves to the word. You want your life to look how God wants it to look? Devote yourself to the apostles' teaching. What else do they do? Fellowship. No such thing as a solo Christian, folks. No such thing. This is even more incumbent upon us in a world where church has become a non-essential option in the last two years. Christianity is devoted to fellowship. I'll say this again. I've said it before. We put stuff out there. We'll live stream services. It was never intended, and it is not intended, to be a long-term substitute for gathering with the people of God. It is not. We will never treat it that way, and it will not become that. It is always an evangelistic tool to use the means that we have to say, here's the gospel, wide world. It's a way to connect for folks who maybe are out of town or are sick or continue to have Reservations about gathering because of COVID-19? That'll be over one day. This is no substitute. There's no such thing as a virtual church. Christians gather. Christians fellowship. You want to grow in grace? You want a life that cultivates a posture of repentance, it doesn't happen detached from the body of Christ. It just won't happen. You may not realize it's not happening, but it won't happen. It can get real easy doing something else. You can slide into some habits. It's a lot of fun. There's a lot of options. There are a lot of options out there, more than there used to be. Sports, sleeping, all kinds of stuff. You want to ask the question, what's next in my walk with Jesus? You want to talk about cultivating a life where I'm constantly turning toward him? The fellowship of the church is essential to that. It's essential. Those of you who are committed to the fellowship of the church know that. And that's why you're here. The proof is in the pudding, as they say. What else do they do? They are devoted to the breaking of bread. That sounds good. I'm devoted to the breaking of bread, too. It's not just a meal, though. It's not just, hey, let's get together and have supper Tuesday night. When they talk about the breaking of bread, they're also talking about Holy Communion. When Jesus finished his walk with those guys on the road to Emmaus, they didn't know who he was. He became... Known to them through what? The breaking of the bread. Before that, in Luke's gospel, Jesus 
the last night he ate with his disciples before his death, took bread and broke it. In that language, the breaking of the bread becomes kind of a sign or a signal or just a code. It's just what they called the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, Eucharist. And it's the place where Jesus is made known. They didn't know who he was on the road to Emmaus until he picked up a piece of bread and broke it. Because somehow, in some beautiful, mysterious, remarkable way, when the people of God gather consistently and regularly around a table where Jesus sits at the head, when he breaks bread, he makes himself known. You want to know Jesus? Get to the table. Not just any table, the table where he sits. And the table where he says, come, this is my body broken for you. They devoted themselves to the sacraments, to the broken bread that is the body of Christ, and prayers. A little bit later, we're told that they went regularly to the temple. So you get these aspects of worship. They devoted themselves to prayer. They went to the temple. They prayed. They worshiped. They they gave, they, this, this, this whole life orientation to God in Christ. And the whole thing started with one commandment to repent. And so again and again, we get this sense like repentance isn't just, hey, here's a one-time deal. You need to repent so you can like check that box and you'll be good with God. Repentance is an ongoing life posture that launches them into a practice of reading the Bible, a practice of regular prayer, a practice of corporate worship, a practice of attending to the sacraments. And you think, man, you say this kind of stuff all the time because Christianity isn't new or inventive. Like, if you got somebody that tells you new stuff that Christians haven't been doing for 2,000 years, maybe that should be a red flag. Methodists and other Christians have been talking about the means of grace for centuries, millennia, and they are, like, we don't have to reinvent the wheel, people. You want to walk with Jesus, it's, there's a pattern. Trust Him. Read His Word. Pray. Engage Him. Worship Meet with other people who know him. Get to the table. And if you do that, you will be cultivating an ongoing posture of repentance, of a life oriented towards Jesus. That's what we mean when we talk about repentance. Is my life oriented to my God? Or something else? They show generosity to one another. People have needs, they meet the needs. Verse 47 is lovely. Verse 46, day by day as they spent much time together in the temple, worshiping, place of worship, they broke bread at home, they ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having the goodwill of all the people. And Day by day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. When churches honor Jesus, when churches are faithful, when churches are filled with people who are oriented to the Lord, they become fruitful churches. Doesn't mean it's popular or even legal. Because there are places in the world right now where if your church ain't registered, you might disappear. And so they go in secret, and they go in dark. 
And they don't put up signs. We've talked about this before. And those are some of the places where the church is thriving most. Those are some of the places where the church is thriving most. In North America, it's ridiculously comfortable to be a Christian. And only 4% of, this is before COVID, it's probably less now, only 4% of the churches are bearing fruit. 96% of the churches in North America are dying. Dying. Scripture gives us everything we need. And it calls upon us. Scripture calls upon us. God calls upon us to cultivate an, a posture of life. What's next? This is next. Cultivate a posture of your whole life oriented to Jesus. Jesus first. Read the Scriptures. Pray. Go to the table. Gather with His people. It's not complicated. And when they do that, there's fruit. And fruit operates on all kinds of levels. It's not just a numbers game. Are people growing closer to Jesus? Are we being drawn closer to Jesus? Are we connecting with new people? And are they and those who have been around for a while, are we all growing deeper in our walk with Him? A crucial aspect of that is cultivating a life posture of You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.